Hello, thanks for joining us for this podcast interview with Tim Wendelboe to discuss his experiences of the specialty revolution in coffee history. I'm Jordan Buchanan and I will conduct this interview with the support of Philip McGowan. Since the late 2000s, specialty coffee has revolutionised the way that we consume our grounds. From the jazzy vibes in the coffee shops to the increasing care for equal trading conditions, specialty coffee has made its mark on the industry. In this interview with Tim Wendelboe, we hope to learn about how specialty coffee emerged and influenced protagonists in the global coffee trade. So thanks, Tim, for agreeing to participate in this podcast. Could you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm Tim Wendelboe, and I'm a, a coffee professional living in Oslo in Norway. Um, I run my own coffee shop and a coffee roastery. I've been working in coffee for uh, 20 plus years. And... Uh, at the moment, I'm also doing some part-time coffee farming on my own farm in Colombia. Um, I'm actually, my main job is to do the green coffee buying and quality control in my company. And of course I run my company. So I'm pretty much involved in, in the whole chain from growing, buying, uh, roasting and, and brewing the coffee uh, more or less. So started as a barista, but ended up behind the computer and <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a field of coffee. So that's who I am. Excellent. Thank you for introducing yourself, Tim, and thanks for coming along. Um, we're going to start with a very general question, and it's how have you experienced the transition to specialty coffee? Uh, well, I have to say that uh, when I started drinking coffee, which was, was kind of when I started working with coffee. So back in 1998, and although I kind of started in a specialty coffee shop uh, in 1998, I, I wouldn't consider that coffee to be, you know, very high quality today. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of things have ha has happened since I started working in coffee. Uh, uh, of course, we had good and bad coffee back then, and we have good and bad coffee today. Uh, I personally don't like to use the word specialty coffee that much because I think it kind of alienates a little bit what we're trying to do. Uh, it sounds, you know, it's, it's a term that for a normal consumer can be quite difficult to grasp or understand. Mm. So, so for me, when I communicate coffee and, and kind of when I drink my own coffee, it's, it's whether it's, is it really good or is it not? Like, is it good quality or not good quality? And um, a good quality can be many things, you know, it can be, a taste, a taste preference can be quite different. So what I consider good quality is that the coffee needs to be clean and sweet and all these kind of things. Um, but I guess the kind of standard of the industry is that specialty is something that kind of stands out in a way, uh, positively. <laughs> and um, I have to say that uh, since I started working uh, with coffee, that this kind of movement has, you know, exploded. Uh, and uh, maybe since... The mid 2000s uh, it has really really exploded and i think part of it is uh, because of the internet uh, you know information is so much more accessible communication is so much easier now we can communicate easy with farmers and farmers can communicate with us consumers can know where their coffee is from you know before we couldn't i when i competed as a barista many years ago i competed with coffee you know that i the only thing I knew was that it was from Kenya. I knew that some of the coffee was from Colombia and that was about mm -hmm. it. So I think the, for me, the transition has, although it's happened gradually, it's been, um, it's, a, it's a very good picture of what 
how positive internet and information can be to an industry that has been so uh, depending on systems where you try to keep people separate from the producer and the, the consumer you know you, you try to kind of keep those worlds separate so that you can make as much money as you can and buy cheap sell expensive you know tell stories about the coffee that might not be true all these kind of things so uh, it's it's been uh, nice to watch over the years how much uh, it has impacted in our industry in in, in a positive way. Uh, that's the kind of short answer, I guess, <laughs> yeah. because you do see changes, uh, you know, not just in in countries like India and Colombia where you can go to Bogota and you know all of a sudden there's many many places where you can go and get a really nice cup of coffee, whereas before you know there wasn't anything like that. But that has also an impact on a few percent of the coffee farmers, uh, a few percent of the coffee workers. And I think it inspires also bigger companies to actually try to do something different because they have to, you know, the consumers are getting more aware. So, yeah, even McDonald's have specialty coffee advertisements now, yeah. <laughs> even if they're making the fun, making fun of us a little bit, but um what you were that's, saying there about that, specialty that's coffee. kind of why i don't like to use the word specialty coffee because when you go to a specialty coffee fair you very often see these big commercial players kind of sponsoring to kind of use that word and are part of the industry as a uh, trying to kind of uh, put makeup on their own uh, products you know with yeah. a really kind of fancy term so you know for me it's uh, i don't like to kind of put a special word on what we're doing. We're trying to make the best possible coffee, and and uh, that's obviously not something a, a huge player like uh, one of those big coffee roasters are. Well, they're able to do it, but they're not interested in actually doing it. <laughs> it's yeah it's too small for them at the moment. Yeah, there are certainly a lot of preconceptions about specialty coffee that big brands play into, and I think as historians, we're trying to reconcile that because we want to define terms so. We want to put yeah. the term, like our instinct is to put the term specialty coffee into a box. And yeah. that's what we want to get into with this interview, like how we can define those terms and explore beginning to not necessarily put heavy definitions down on specialty coffee, but sort of begin to think about what it is and how we can think about it in a more meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we want to take a step back and start with your coffee buying experience. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'd like to ask you a little about your role as a green coffee buyer and how this has changed since you began purchasing green coffee. So could you tell us a little bit about how specialty coffee has changed, how coffee roasters and coffee green buyers purchase coffee? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it has changed uh, that much, but more options have been become available. Uh, so... Um, there's so many different ways of buying coffee uh, uh, and at different levels of quality, different levels of kind of transparency, uh, different levels of quality control. Um, when I started my company, um, I was mainly buying my green coffee through another coffee roaster. And that was because I was very small. So um, I was fortunate to have a partner uh, that was uh, an existing coffee roastery. Uh, they had kind of invested in my company. So I would, you know, just basically go into their warehouse and select whatever I wanted. And uh, I could also kind of buy some coffees at auctions like Cup of Excellence. 
uh, and get those shipped together with that roaster. Uh, so for me, that was kind of easy in the beginning, but uh, I realized, you know, that they didn't necessarily have all the information that I wanted about the coffee. Um, and I couldn't access the quality that I knew was out there. I had, although I wasn't a, you know, very experienced buyer, I had been to a few of the, those couple excellence competitions and tasted in coffee fairs and uh, other coffee shops, you know, qualities that were amazing. Uh, and I couldn't necessarily find those qual types of qualities to just one coffee roaster. Uh, mm. So I decided to kind of, especially with Kenyan coffee, that was kind of the first place where I went to actually buy coffee. And that was basically because one, I heard that the farmers that I had bought coffee from through, uh, you know, and a roaster and an importer and that I heard that the farmers hadn't gotten paid a year later that I had bought the coffee. And uh, second of all, I also didn't kind of find the, the Kenyan coffee quality that I knew was out there because uh, I had tasted it on occasions, but I couldn't really access the product. So it was kind of coincidental, but I had been there a few times to be a judge in a barista competition in Kenya. Um, and um, I contacted the people that I kind of knew through that network and they happened to be working in a coffee exporting company called Sea Dormants. And uh, so I went down there and, you know, there were almost no buyers there. I was there with uh, two other buyers, one from Denmark and one from the US. And, uh, you know, the exporter was just, you know, welcoming us with open arms and, you know, treating us and taking us around. And uh, we were able to cup a lot of coffees and select, you know, the few bags that we needed and bought it and shipped it to Norway. And I was super happy. So um, then I thought, you know, that was easy. Why don't I just do that <laughs> everywhere? <laughs> and, um, you know, it, gradually I, I started traveling more and, and uh, it was basically kind of a Central America that made me get more into it because um, I was buying coffees through the Cup of Excellence, which is kind of an internet auction system um, in Central America. And um, some of those coffees were amazing when we tasted them. And then when they arrived Norway uh, a few months later after we bought them, uh, some of them would taste terrible and that was because they had been aging and you know something had happened in between when I bought it and when it came and the coffee you know we knew that it was the same coffee because we bought it through a very secure system but so I kind of needed to understand you know what's the reason why one coffee can taste amazing and the other one not even though they're shipped in the same container and they're more or less from the same place and so that's kind of what got me into really seeking out single farmers and trying to understand how they produce the coffee and trying to understand what actually made a difference in terms of shelf life quality uh, and so on and the more you kind of visit a farm the more you see what's lacking in terms of infrastructure and routines and mm. quality control so i'm a kind of a control freak and want my products to be very high quality so it's better that you kind of are in control of that then rather than just you know hoping that it will be good quality you, you can make sure that it's good quality you know so um that's kind of how i got into traveling more and working more directly with farmers and helping them develop protocols that they could follow in order to consistently be able to produce high quality 
Interesting. Does that experience of searching out individual farmers to work with and begin on it to work with on a more direct level, does that vary from origin to origin or? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the origin. Yes. Uh, sometimes like in Colombia, I met uh, the farmer that I work with now through an exporter that I was traveling around with. Uh, it was kind of a little bit random, but uh, he had kind of plan that we visited a few farmer groups and one of those farmers turned out to be Elias that I'm working with and I actually didn't buy coffee from him for many years and then you know for some reason we met again uh, in a different circumstance and he had bought a huge farm and needed some help uh, kind of <laughs> getting his feet on the ground so I decided you know this this is a project with potential and since I kind of knew him from before, I've met him a few times before and he seemed like a very nice man. Uh, then we just started working together. So that, that's kind of one part of it. And mm -hmm. in uh, Central America, most of the farmers or all of the farmers that I buy from there, uh, I've met through the Cup of Excellence system. Whether it has been that I bought their coffee on the auction and then went the following year to visit them or I actually met the farmers uh, you know, at a dinner in one of these uh, when I was a jury there and you know for some reason we just connected <laughs> yeah it's incredible that you've established such the like long-lasting relationships with these farmers and like the next question you sort of touched on it there but how has your relationship with these farmers developed throughout the period that you've worked with them and <laughs> is it personal or business or yeah I mean it each individual is very different um so it's kind of like uh it's kind of like when you have friends or business partners or you know it, it really depends on how you connect with a person mm -hmm. and for me since most of these uh, farmers i've worked with for a very long time uh you know in in colombia with elias i stay in his house you know three months a year because i bought some land from him that is now my own farm uh, and i don't have a house on my farm so i i stay at his, his house and we help each other you know i help him with ideas and quality control and all these kind of things and i buy a lot of his coffees but despite that, you know, it, it really feels like a part of my family now. And I actually spend more time with him than I do with my own family. You know, my mom and dad, I, you know, I see them a few days a year. And then with Elias, I see him three months a year, you know, every single day for three months. So um, um, that's kind of a, you know, we can speak about anything. It, it really doesn't matter. We, we have a very open dialogue about everything and if he has a problem with something he will of course take it up with me and we discuss it and it's kind of in our in both our interest to to make sure that this project survives in a good way and it, it can only survive if we're both happy you know and uh, it's a little bit the same with the farmers in honduras that i work with uh, i worked with them for a long time you know i stay in their house when i'm there uh, we discuss a lot two of them I have more contact with on a regular basis because they speak English um, but one I have uh, not that much contact with throughout the year but you know a little bit here and there and it's in Spanish and he's also he doesn't like smartphones so <laughs> he prefers you know to communicate through his wife because he, he just wants a simple phone um, yeah so that's um, it really depends but um all of the farmers that I've been buying from for a long time, I, I feel like they're very, very good friends of mine and, and also, you know, business partners. So we, we kind of, 
like for instance, when the pandemic came in, I didn't really know, it was right in the beginning of a buying season. And I didn't really know if I could buy the same amount of coffee that I was planning on. And um, a few of them actually said, you know, buy the volumes you need and we can discuss the price and you help us through, you know, hard times and we're going to help you through hard times. And in, in, in it, it's in our interest to sell the coffee, you know, as much as we can. So I'm glad that, you, you know, it's not just a one way thing. It's, it's both, both sides see that we can help each other uh, through hard times. Yeah, it sounds like a, a real mutually beneficial relationship. And plus you have holiday homes all over the world now. So that's <laughs> one benefit. Yeah, the yeah. problem is when I'm there, we, we only speak about coffee all the time, you know. So <laughs> it's not really a holiday, but <laughs> <laughs> it's great though. Like uh, especially, for instance, Marisabel and Moises in, in Honduras, when I stay with them, you know, we're, we all love really, we, we, we really love good food and to explore nice food and so Marisabel always has you know some nice food to cook and uh, yeah it's it's uh it really feels like you know good friends and family that sounds great yeah um well moving on one aspect of your sort of the way you talk about your coffee on your website that i want to talk about is the cost breakdown of what you pay yeah. for your green coffee and that's an extremely unusual practice for a coffee roastery to publicize its cost in that way. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on why you think that's important. <laughs> well, uh, I think it's important to, for many reasons, actually. First of all, uh, other farmers can see what we're paying. Mm. That means they can use those numbers if they feel like they have, you know, similar or good quality products. They they kind of have a reference to a, what a one buyer at least is paying, so uh, that they have some negotiation leverage, I guess. Mm. Um, that's one side of it. Another side is that uh, I think you know a lot of roasters claim to be transparent and say that transparency is important, and then but they're not publishing anything <laughs> so that's for me you know uh, not so nice um, we had a, a roasters forum in in oslo two years ago where we had like a spur of the moment uh, discussion about transparency and you know i tend to feel like a lot of these discussions uh we're, we, we're not discussing the real issue here we're discussing technicalities like which is the correct price to report you know, uh, how are we going to report all these kind of things instead of actually addressing the issue. And I, I asked a question to the audience, which was only, there were only roasters in the audience. And I asked the question, how many people think transparency is important? And everyone raised their hands. And then I asked the second question, so how many people have published what they're actually paying for the coffee? And nobody raised their hands. And I think, you know, that's the thing, like, what what we call specialty coffee industry where we we all talk about the importance of transparency and sustainability and all these kind of things but nobody is really doing anything about it and when i say nobody that's not true because there are hmm. quite a few roasters now publishing what they're paying uh you know doing fantastic work so there are companies who are doing it and at least for my company it's only been a positive thing we we got we get we always get very good uh, feedback on it, uh, especially from farmers. They think it's great, you know, that we're actually honest about what we're paying. 
other roasters as well get inspired and they do the same. Uh, the consumers, you know, might not understand it, and, but it's kind of a way for us to say, you know, fair trade is one thing, but this is actually what we're doing. And um, it's different. It's not like one is better than the other. It's just, that's the way we do it. And this is why our coffees cost a little bit more than what you're paying in the supermarkets. So mm. um, I think, you know, um, for me, I think it's important that I run a company that is following the books. And uh, for me, exploiting people is not following the books. <laughs> you know? mm. And uh, when we know the kind of uh, prices that uh, the commodity coffee is based on, and that price has been standing still for, you know, 40, 50 years, uh, that rings a bell for me you know that means the farmer actually has the salary of someone who lives lives in the 60s or 70s it's the same salary except all the expenses have gone up and uh, that's I don't think that's okay you know I think uh, we should pay a good price for the coffee and and of course not pay an overprice like that's not what we're talking about that we're paying a good price so that the farmer can invest in his farm and and produce the qualities that we enjoy to drink and enjoy to buy and for me, it's kind of like, uh, it, it, it would be the same, like the coffee world uh, has always worked. Like we, we tell the farmers what the price is going to be. You know, that's mm. the kind of commodity system. So, okay, the market price today is $1.50. And the farmer can't do anything about it other than waiting and not selling his coffee where the coffee is going to get old and he'll get it in a really lower price. Um, or he can sell it for that price. It's kind of like uh, if you went into my coffee shop and telling me today I'm going to pay one pound or one dollar for your cappuccino because that's the market price today. You know, I'm not able to run a business like that. And uh, a coffee farmer is also not able to run a business like that. And it is a business. So um, I think uh, I try to use my voice to inspire other companies to do the right thing in that that is to pay, you know, a, a fair price for the coffee so that the coffee farmers can continue supplying us. And it's, it only makes common sense. You know, if, if you're, if you're running a roastery that is depending on getting high quality coffee year after year, you have to support the suppliers. Otherwise they disappear. That's, it's as simple as that. Yeah. That's an excellent answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, very thorough. Um, so stepping away from your role as a coffee buyer and onto your work in roasting and selling coffee in Norway and beyond. Since you opened your cafe and began selling coffee, both locally and globally to different wholesale accounts maybe, uh, what changes have you noticed in the consumer culture of specialty coffee? Wow, uh, I, I would say a lot has happened and you know the biggest noticeable difference is that there's a lot more consumers who are educated on coffee now like there's mm -hmm. a lot more consumers who have preferences you know that goes beyond whether it's a light or a dark roast um, you know we have consumers who have preferences they prefer to drink natural processed coffees they prefer to drink coffees from kenya they prefer to drink you know the geisha variety instead of katuai so there's definitely an increase in in the amount of people who has good knowledge of coffee and and also you know even before what the people who kind of had knowledge of coffee didn't really know anything about coffee it's the same with me like 10 years ago i didn't know that much about coffee you know <laughs> there, there's so much more information available and i think the industry as a whole has 
been able to educate itself because there's more people joining it and who are interested in it. More farmers, more roasters, more baristas, more scientists, more of everything. And collectively, we've been able to uh, increase the amount of information uh, about coffee that is, you know, interesting and and that kind of separates it from uh, other commodity products. And I mean, you could go the same with the with wheat, for instance. Wheat is a commodity, but there's many different types of types of wheat. There's many different varieties. They taste different. So you could mm -hmm. actually do this in other industries as well. It's just coffee is a little bit more. Uh, it's kind of a product that kind of allows it for to be both commodity and some luxury because you can sit down and really enjoy it. Uh, yeah, side. I'd love to yeah. see hip hipsters getting nerdy about wheat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, some people are already. You know, uh, if you're baking sourdough bread, you mm. you have the, the the nerdiest guys. They have their own. Yeah grinder for grinding the, the grains and so that is freshly ground it actually makes a huge difference so uh, yeah yeah excellent point <laughs> um and how do you consider your contribution i guess this could tail off the education um, aspect and that passion for education how do you consider your contribution to specialty coffee for these consumers well, I'm not sure if I've contributed a lot, mm. but uh, I'm, I hope that I've been uh, able to at least open some people's eyes to, to better quality coffee and, you know, uh, yeah, through education. I, I love to, to, to teach people and because it's kind of like the same thing when I started with coffee. I didn't like coffee and then all of a sudden I tasted something that tastes really nice and like, oh, this is different and it has impacted my whole life like i maybe i would have ended up here anyway i don't know but i'm much more interested in wine i'm much more interested in you know high quality food when i buy products i tend to seek out quality products rather than cheap products because normally quality products last longer and you know in the end they end up becoming cheaper and more enjoyable to use whether it's a shirt or you know something you eat or something you drink so um I hope that I can give that kind of uh, awareness to other people and by educating them more. And I cool. think that's maybe my focus has been to educate our industry more in, in over the years, but um, I'm really not trying to discriminate a, a, a you know, new consumer that is, uh, or a consumer that's new to coffee or, or an experienced mm -hmm. coffee person, because I, I believe a lot of the same knowledge applies to both categories and, a lot of professionals also lack, you know, very basic uh, education in coffee. That's true. Um, and I guess on that note as well, like how has the way you've marketed your coffee changed over time? And is that specific to, uh, <laughs> you know, like within the coffee community or I guess I'm asking, who are you targeting with that? And uh, who, who would you like to drink your coffee? Well, I, you know, there's many, we, we've always had the same marketing strategy and that is to, we, we try never to pay for marketing. Uh, and what I mean by that is that I'd rather pay a person to, you know, do social media than to just buy an advertisement on a website, you know. So we, I'm trying to think long-term with our marketing and 
when I started working in coffee, there was someone teaching me about guerrilla marketing. And that's kind of, you know, being present on events, you know, being part of the community, um, speaking about coffee, educating people about coffee, doing, doing the hard job that in the long term, it will, it will benefit your company rather than doing the buying one advertisements and making a lot of money, or paying a lot of money for that. And, you know, that kind of uh, bus kind of just lasts for a week or two and then it's over. So our, our strategy has been the same always, but our tools have, of course, changed. Like in the beginning, we used blogging a lot, and now we use social media a lot. And, uh, but I, I think, you know, our, our focus is probably more geared towards uh, uh, internet shopping at the moment, uh, whereas mm. before it was probably a little bit more geared towards wholesale and kind of come to our shop. Now that that's not possible, we we had to kind of focus a little bit more on online sales. And in fact, we actually have just hired a, a second person to kind of deal with our digital marketing platform because it's also becoming so sophisticated that I can't do it myself anymore. You know, in the beginning you could do it yourself, but it's a different ball game today. <laughs> yeah, so many platforms at the moment, and so many places you're expected to post about your coffee. Yeah, and I think also as a company, um, although I, I try to only post things that have some good content, you know, that's kind of mm. educational content or whatever, um, just to be able to reach out to the people who want to receive your information today is much more difficult than it used to be. You know, before uh, everything you posted on Instagram would just show up on everyone's feed all the time, but now it's a little bit different, you know. <laughs> yeah. I guess, could you also uh, tell us a little bit about your different, like I noticed you're very present across all platforms, um, <laughs> even on YouTube. And I know some coffee companies now on the likes of TikTok and uh, those up and coming social media platforms, but could you tell us a little bit about your YouTube channel and the your aims behind that? Yeah, I guess uh, in the beginning, uh, like I, I've, I've always recorded videos, um, but uh, we didn't really have a good platform for it. And then mm -hmm. I, I decided to switch to YouTube. Uh, I don't know why, but you know, I guess some people told me you should do that. And then I did. And then now today we're using it mainly for our subscription service. So we record uh, a video every month where I taste the coffees we send out to our subscribers and kind of taste them and talk about them. But uh, the goal is actually to, to create a lot more content. It's just, uh, <laughs> Yeah, the last year has been a little bit uh, different than uh, what I expected. And of course, in the beginning of the pandemic, we thought, oh, now we have time to do all these kind of things. But uh, it turned out that uh, I've been busier than ever, actually. So <laughs> um, the, the idea is that we are going to use YouTube, especially to, uh, to record a little bit more and probably a little bit shorter videos, but that are more kind of relevant for consumers as well. Um, I'm not trying to be the new James Hoffman or anything. I think he's, you know, he's one of my favorite YouTubers and I think he's fantastic. He's also a good friend. So uh, that's not kind of our uh, goal. We just want to, we have so many emails every week where uh, a lot of our customers ask us good mm. questions, you know, that we could easily make a short video about. And a lot of those questions are the same week after week. So um, we have kind of a little, uh, <laughs> bank account so to say about uh, all these topics that we want to publish something about and 
that's kind of the goal for the next year is to start doing that. Cool. I think it's also a great way to you know communicate with consumers. Um, they can ask questions, and sometimes we have time to answer them as well. But um, yeah, yeah, I look forward to seeing all of those videos. Yeah, thanks. And you know, we also use Instagram for that, but I think YouTube is a little bit easier because it's always going to be there. You know, uh, with Instagram, a lot of the content just disappears in the feed, and uh, so I like to kind of use different platforms for different different content. And yeah. Mm, okay. Cool. So Facebook, I hope, will die. But uh, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, too many ads, too much but, going on now. Yeah, but but we have to acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of uh, people above my age, at least, who are still using Facebook as their main social media. For instance, my mom, and I want to reach out to those people as well. You know, it's it's not just about the young, cool, hip kids who has the latest uh, social media platform. Yeah, I agree. You have to give your mom that monthly update. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll step, take a step away from marketing now and move on to discuss an overarching theme of this interview, which has been coffee quality, as it always is with specialty coffee. And specialty coffee com companies like yourself often distinguish themselves from mainstream coffee companies by emphasizing the quality of the product. We've, we've talked about that a little. Um. And I know, as you said earlier, you're actively involved in the coffee chain throughout the chain from cultivation to roasting and brewing. So um, trying to think what we haven't touched on, but I guess a good, a good place to start is, has the price tag associated with quality influenced who consumes uh, these products? Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> you know, um... I would say the average consumer in Norway uh, expects coffee to be quite cheap, you know, mm. because it, it's free when you go into a gas station. You can in Norway you can buy like a, a reusable cup and get free refills for a whole year on a gas station. So that's the kind of standard we're working against, you know. And um, when you buy a quarter kilo of a of coffee in the, in the supermarket, it will cost you, you know, a little bit above a euro not more so um when that's the kind of standard and then you come into the market and say oh no you're going to pay 12 dollars or 12 euros per per quarter kilo of course you're gonna offend people <laughs> but there are a lot of people who understands it and wants to buy it uh, and really likes it so i think yes you do separate who you're able to appeal to just by the price for sure uh, and then, then the kind of uh, quest becomes to make people understand why they need to pay more for coffee. Because if they want to continue drinking coffee, they can't, you know, pay an underprice for it. Because the people, are, people who grow it, they're gonna change. If they have an alternative, they will change. Mm. Uh, and there will be alternatives in the future for sure. One of the things that I've, you know, I've said many times is that. Once marijuana is legal, you're not going to see coffee anymore because you can grow them on the same place easily. And, uh, you know, it's probably going to be much more profitable, at least in the beginning. Mm. So, um, and you, you see that with some crops like avocado. Uh, people are changing to avocado some places, swapping out coffee. But it's, it's kind of a, you can't just do it. You need to have a place to sell the coffee as well. Uh, 
Yeah. So um, excellent. I, I guess the price has uh, definitely has an influence. Yeah, and I hope you're not thinking about switching over to marijuana whenever the change is <laughs> Actually, my um, I have a lawyer in uh, in uh, Colombia who's kind of uh, overseeing my the formalities around my coffee farm because you have to pay taxes and all these things. And he, he has a client who has bought some land to, to grow medical marijuana and said like, Tim, you should start with this because it's much more money than in coffee. <laughs> and obviously he's telling me that because my farm hasn't made a dime yet. You know, we're, we're still just paying to produce and we haven't produced anything. <laughs> so it was a joke, but, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not going getting into that business. That's for sure. Okay. Confirmed. Yeah. Uh, I'll ask one more question about quality then. And then I'll pass you over to Jordan after that. So we know that the idea of quality can change based on changing consumer preferences. And um, so in the 20th century, naturally processed coffee was considered as far inferior to wet processed coffee. And owing to technological innovation, the wet process was unquestionably the best means for producers to process quality coffee for a long time. But today we know that systems for processing coffee by the dried or natural method have improved and consumers have a greater demand for dry processed coffee. So now there are many more processing methods in trial, as I'm sure you're aware, yeah. macerated naturals and carbonic and whatever else you want to call them. So yeah. I guess, how have you experienced the changing relationship between the rise of specialty coffee and these processing methods? Well, I, I, I'm a, you know, I have nothing against uh, different ways of processing coffee. Um, mm. I personally don't like a lot of the processed coffees because uh, I don't think they taste very nice. And uh, I think it can also be quite damaging to both the farmer, can be damaging to, you know, specialty coffee, if we call it that. Um, if it's not done well, but sold as being something fantastic, you know, which happens all the time. There's so much, I, I have to say, there, there's so much rotten coffee being sold as something special just because it was processed and fermented to death in a metal container or plastic bucket or whatever. And then you put some fancy name on it uh, and it's sold like something special for a very, very high price. And then people drink it and say like, oh, this wasn't very good and I feel ripped off, you know? And I'm not saying that all these processes are like that. You know, you, there is a difference between processing really well and not processing really well. And I think uh, because some uh, producers have been able to to innovate in in the ways of processing, both in natural and uh, you know honey process, um, and they have been able to produce really high quality coffees in that category uh, it inspires a lot of farmers to try the same and then they might not have the same knowledge and technologies mm. so it becomes products that are not so nice and then they expect to get a really high price you know and sometimes they can and then it's sold to a person or a consumer who tastes it and like oh this is terrible or it can you know it can go all the way so I, there's a lot of dilemmas in this uh kind of processing things and uh, but I'm uh, what I'm trying to say is that when done well I don't think uh, any process is superior quality or lower quality but they create different flavors and uh, there are 
so many different people on the planet that prefer different you know foods and flavors so there's room for everything but um we're just in an industry that is quite you know immature i would say uh so we tend to kind of fall in love with all the defects um it's it's kind of like uh with wine um when the natural wine movement it's a little bit the same because there's a lot of fantastic natural wine that has always been natural you know <laughs> and uh, there's wines where you alter the flavors by adding yeast and so on and uh, i guess both can be high and low quality um, but the 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 kind of traditional way of or conventional way of making wine where you add yeast and kind of control everything and you put sulfur in the bottle to kind of kill the wine so it's stable and uh, those people would say that natural wine are always defect because they've tasted maybe 10 bottles and maybe they were all defect, you know, maybe they were corked or mousy or whatever. Um, and that, but it doesn't mean that all natural wine are of terrible quality. You know, you have fantastic quality in natural wine and you, then you also have terrible qualities. And I think that's the same with the, with the, these kind of processes. It's just, we are not mature enough as an industry to have been able to define, you know, what is a well processed carbonic macerated natural? Like, what does that taste like? What are the defects we're looking for? What are the kind of positives we're looking for? And this, because we have this system with washed coffees. If you have a washed coffee and it tastes fermented or over fermented or rotten, then it's a defect. But if you have a carbonic macerated coffee that tastes rotten or defect, that's the kind of flavor you want. <laughs> So maybe that's not a defect anymore, but it, it's the kind of what, what scale are we at in that kind of defect flavor? Um, so it's, uh, it's, and this is part of why coffee is so much fun. You know, it, it can be really, you know, one of my, my kind of favorite uh, experiences with coffee has been a natural process because it really opened my eyes like, wow, coffee can really taste like fruit juice, you know? Uh, and that was a very well-processed natural coffee. Um, but um, it, it doesn't mean that I, that's the only thing that I'm going to drink, you know. But it, 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 I had to kind of have an opinion about it. It, it forced me to have an opinion about it. And uh, I really love discussing this and tasting it with other people. And because there is really no right or wrong, except you can actually discuss whether it's a high or low quality natural or a high low quality carbonic macerated there it should be definable somehow you know i agree like sometimes you do a double take and you have to check the bag and make sure it's coffee that you're drinking you should, you know. <laughs> but yeah yeah and i mean i you know sometimes i've tasted coffees that are just you know you can taste that they have they're rotten like you because each cup is inconsistent and you have some moldy cups and you have some fermented cups and uh you know, some people can say, oh, I really find this interesting. Fine, but then you can actually say that this is actually not good quality. You know, this is not a well-processed product. A well-processed product should be controllable uh, so that you get consistent flavors, you know. Yeah. So, for instance, with cheese, you can say that blue cheese, yeah, it's a moldy cheese, but uh, they can reproduce it. Whereas uh, some of these processes, you're not able to reproduce because they don't know what the heck went on, you know? <laughs> Excellent point. Well, thank you very much for answering my questions.
on the You're welcome. I'll pass you over to Jordan. He has a few questions too. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thanks very much, Tim, for the very detailed responses. And my first theme that I'm going to talk about is about uh, kind of global history and coffee. It's been great to hear you respond with such global perspective in these questions that we've asked already. So I'm really looking forward to hear uh, your thoughts and like, approaching this directly. So uh, how do you see coffee and its influence and role in our globalised existence? How do you see it uh, like in our lives and its importance? Wow. Well, I, I, you know, it's such a complex question that I, I don't really know the answer to it. Um, <clears throat> coffee has been traded for many, many, many years, and it's been part of, a, you know, slavery. It's been part of a, a poverty. Um, you know, for Norway, for instance, uh, one of the reasons why I have good quality coffee in Norway is by coincidence. Like we had codfish we make a lot of, or we fish a lot of codfish. And uh, uh, right after the Second World War, we were one of the poorest countries in Europe. This was before we discovered oil and all these things. And uh, we had to rebuild the country. We needed to have dollars to be able to you know, import stuff. So there were restrictions on using dollars, for instance. And uh, so our only option was to buy the cheapest possible coffee from Indonesia, you know, Robusta coffees or whatever was available back then. But uh, then some of the bigger coffee roasters in Norway, they figured that, you know, in Brazil, they really like codfish from Norway. So we could trade codfish with Brazil and they would send high quality coffee back. And this is one of the reasons why we have good quality Brazilian coffees as one of our kind of standard supermarket coffees. It's always in their blends. And probably part of the reason why Norwegians are drinking a lot of high quality coffees. Um, so, you know, there's so many aspects of uh, coffee history that kind of comes together when you start digging. And uh, I, I, I told you on the email that I'm not the biggest uh, historian, um, but I also kind of went to Ethiopia and, and while I was there, I was reading a book about Ethiopian coffee history and how it kind of, uh, how it moved from Ethiopia into Yemen and how it sometimes came back to Ethiopia as almost new varieties and how, you know, they were using kind of a monopoly for exports. Uh, so it, it's been such a political, uh, political trade as well uh, and has had a huge impact on many countries. And what's one of the sociological anthropologists in, uh, or famous anthropologists in Norway, he always says that it's funny that coffee that was you know, discovered in Africa or native in Africa, is actually mainly grown in the Americas. You know, the biggest producers is Brazil and Colombia. <laughs> and cocoa, which is native to America, the biggest producers is in Africa. It's really strange that these things happen, but it's all part of the kind of triangular trade, a slave trade. And, and it's, yeah, it's a little, uh, it's a complicated uh, thing. And I think still today, you know, uh, we see that uh, a lot of, one of the things that can kind of help develop communities is actually coffee. Like you can go in, it's happened in Vietnam, you know, where uh, people try to kind of make an impact on the rural uh, places and introduce coffee as a, a, a viable trade. And uh, of course it's Robusta coffee, but it has become something that uh, has increased the 
income into rural areas in Vietnam. So um, that's why I think you know coffee. I, I'm just a tiny little dot in the in the world of coffee, you know. And probably in 50 years, no one will ever remember my name anyway. So I'm just trying to have a positive impact on the whole thing, as you know, when I'm here and trying to inspire other people to do better things and kind of move away from that kind of old school uh, trades model where buyers and consumers are kind of separated from producers. And there's something in the middle there that just, you know, makes everything uh, anonymized. That's great to hear your uh, thoughts there on, the, on that general idea of coffee in, this, in, the, in the world. Um, and you kind of started working on an answer to this here, which is, uh, I was interested how the world of like the coffee world has influenced you, uh, such as global changes, especially coffee revolution is one, but then you also have uh, change in politics across the world as well, as you mentioned, and economic changes. Uh, so I was just wondering how, that, how the world has affected you and your work. Well, uh, you know, uh, it has for sure opened my mind. Like, uh, I'm, a, I'm a guy from Norway, from the middle class in Norway, you know, and uh, we, if <laughs> I can relate to my own family, like uh, everything evolves around us uh, in our world. We see things from our perspective. Um, you know, we complain about society in Norway. Oh, the roads are terrible. and because there's a little hole in the road somewhere. Right? And uh, once you kind of start traveling to, to Africa and to Central America and you see how different people live around the globe and what value can be, you know, how much value a dollar can be in one place and how little it can have a value in other places. It really opens your mind a little bit. And, I, at least for me personally, I've, I have a much more uh, or a different perspective. You know, I, I'm not so concerned about uh, stuff necessarily being or a road not being perfect here in Norway. You know, that's not for me. That's not an issue. It's we have bigger issues to address than a little road. <laughs> so that's one thing. And I think you know, the more I've traveled to Origin, I, I've. I'm, the way I buy coffee has changed for sure. Like uh, what I see as quality um, has changed. Uh, how we price coffee has changed. Um, and that's just because I see that there's, I, I can appreciate the work behind it more now that I've been staying on the farm for many months, for many years uh, and seeing all the kind of daily work routines that they go through. and also feeling on my body how hard work it is by doing the work myself. Um, so it has actually changed my mind a lot. And I think also maybe politically I've, I've become a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, Norway is a social democracy, but I've become more uh, kind of uh, aware of social issues uh, and not so egoistic in a way, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. That's a great response to kind of tying into the idea of coffee allows or inspires people to look out to the world and look at how other people live. It really connects people who are in the global north, for example, in Europe, and it connects people with the lives that exist and make this coffee in, in other places in the Americas, in Africa and in Asia. Um, so, I mean, 
it's great, it's great that you allude to some of those things. Uh, and again, benefits of traveling as well. Being able to expose yeah. yourself to those experiences is great. Um, and I guess one I think one of the things that um, is really kind of, I can pinpoint, you know, in, in the, before when I went to Central America, for instance, it would be, and that's also a language barrier, you know, they spoke Spanish and I spoke English or Norwegian. And uh, I would think of them as farmers, you know, the farmers are doing this, the farmers are doing that. Uh, you kind of uh, looked at, the, at them as something, you know, different and then once you kind of get to know them and you kind of start to understand them as well because i understand a little bit more spanish now and uh you realize you know they're just like you you know they're, they're really smart people who wants to do, you know progress and do something uh, with their lives and we're we're basically the same you know it's not a farmer and then a buyer we're, we're people uh, so it's kind of a it's it's strange to say it, you know. It sounds a little wrong when I'm saying it, but um, I, I guess I had a little bit preconceptions of what a farmer was before, and you know, today it's they're just people, you know. They're <laughs> really nice people as well, at least in the case where I'm working with. That's a fantastic response. It's great to remember that human agency that comes into the you know the world that the globalized world. It's not just economy. It's people that really drive it. So thanks very much for sharing that. Um, so I wanted to actually move into the specific part of the globe that uh, you decided to work in, which is uh, Colombia, as you made a specific choice to go there. I was wondering why you chose Colombia. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. it, uh, you know, Colombia is a fantastic country, I have to say. Uh, the, the culture is fantastic. People are really nice. Um, the food is great. Um, and it's just such a lush and diverse place. And um, the reason why I kind of chose Colombia to buy a farm there was mainly because uh, I had the opportunity. Like the person that I'm buying coffee from there is a good friend of mine now. And he's a very honest, hardworking guy. And if I wanted to buy a piece of land somewhere, I would need a person to help me. And, and he was willing to do that. So that's the biggest part of why I chose Colombia. And uh, also because it, it made sense because the whole country is kind of built around coffee, you know. You can't go to any town in Colombia that doesn't have a purchasing point for coffee. Well, I guess, you know, where they don't grow coffee, you can, but <laughs> at least in the, in the in mountains, there, in any town, there will be a place where you can sell your coffee and also where you can buy coffee. And uh, so the lo logistically, it's, it's, you know, really built for coffee and really depending on good logistical systems if you're gonna export your own coffee um yeah so it's it's a combination of many but it really it's the perfect place to, to to try to do something different also uh, i think because a lot of the coffee farmers in colombia are growing the same varieties they're following the same systems because they have a very strong uh, growers organization who are kind of teaching them uh, the same ways. Um, so for me to kind of try to break out of that mold and try to prove that you can do it differently in a good way, more kind of uh, that has less impact on the environment and hopefully a better impact on the quality and production. We'll see. But uh, that's also a challenge that I, I thought I couldn't miss. You know. That's really interesting. The the, the combination of economic and like social 
reasons as to why you chose that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in, in any, and like, I would love to have a farm in Ethiopia, but hmm. politically I'm not allowed, I'm not allowed to own land there as far as I know. And uh, hmm. uh, it's also politically a little bit more challenging, I think, to, to yeah, be on the countryside there. And I see, you know, I, I buy from a few farmers there and I see how much trouble they have with the local people uh, from time to time, uh, even though they're providing them jobs and paying them well, and it can be uh, difficult because there's so many cultural uh, uh, aspects of it and political aspects. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, um, you were chatting about a little bit of the history there in terms of the very recent history of the culture and that coffee trade. I was wondering how the history of coffee in Colombia influences your work. Well, the history, I, I don't really know. I mean, uh, the history kind of, uh, <laughs> well, I, I can't really speak about the long history in Colombia because I don't, I'm not so familiar about it. But f- from my understanding is that uh, the Coffee Growers Federation in Colombia is a big part of Colombian coffee history. And uh, the way they do things, uh, or the the average Colombian farmer will follow their recommendations, for instance. So for me, that's you know, not the way I want to go. And I've actually looked a little bit into the history, like recently, and it turns out like, you know, 50, 60 years ago, most of the Colombian farmers were growing coffee under shade trees. Whereas today, you know, they cut down all the shade trees, which is probably why they have so much trouble with different things. Um, so I want to go back to that kind of shade-grown coffee, for instance. But, um, you know, history is longer than 50 years and 100 years. And <laughs> so I, I'm not really sure how it actually affects how I work there, but I'm, you know, yeah, it's hard to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, every year is very loose time of history. It can refer to the you know, previous 10 years. It can refer to 200 years ago. But yeah, so I'm just... Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult, yeah. but I, I guess, you know, one of the things that makes it easier for me to work there is that they do have a strong growers federation that has been working for many, many years, you know, developing certain varieties and, and there is kind of a, a community, uh, although there's over half a million farmers in Colombia, they are somehow connected through the growers federation. Uh, and me as a grower can also be part of that federation and kind of dig into their uh, archives in terms of research and resources. And uh, although I haven't used it that much at the moment, uh, I have uh, been able to use it somewhat and that I've been there learning and so on. So uh, yeah, I guess that's definitely helpful to me and probably will be more helpful in the future than it is at the moment. So once I start kind of producing coffee and selling coffee, then of course, all these kind of mechanisms that has been developed because of their trade history is going to be very useful for me. It's uh, great to hear that you use the archives and put them into practical use. Yeah, <laughs> well. oh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, good research that's been done and that's kind of just been archi- archived, you know, because new things uh, come up and then people forget. but what I'm trying to do there is to, to prove that you can grow coffee without fertilizers, without uh, pesticides. And uh, if you want to do that, you have to kind of work with nature, which is what farmers used to do, you know? 
until they got the kind of uh, more easy way out to to fertilize and spray pesticides and all these kind of things which which in the end didn't turn out to be that easy anyway it turned out to be more expensive and, and less sustainable and so as you'd mentioned previously about using lawyers uh, and you've also re referenced the language you know growth of spanish uh, so i was wondering what the challenges of working in a transnational enterprise between norway and colombia have been well the biggest challenge is that i'm not there you know that's the by far the biggest challenge so um uh, a lot of the work that I do on my farm is kind of knowledge-based and um, for instance making compost it, it's, it looks very easy and it is very easy but you have to pay attention to a few details during the process uh, you have to pay attention to temperature, smells, uh, what kind of material you're using, uh, how much of it you're using and uh, to teach that to someone without speaking the language is a challenge, of course. Um, also, you can teach someone and then maybe after three months, they are off to somewhere else to work because a lot of the farm workers are seasonal workers. So they tend to move where the picking is going on um, because then they can make more money fast. You know, When you pick a lot of coffee, you can make more money than if you're just working on a daily salary, you know, weeding or doing other stuff. So I haven't really succeeded in having a person on, on the ground that is kind of following up on a daily basis. And um, uh, so that's kind of the biggest challenge. It becomes kind of like a, a stuff that I do from time to time when I'm there, you know, and I, I wish I could be there a little bit more and, and kind of speak the language a little bit more fluently and and find that person that could actually do that. But uh, other than that, it's, you know, it's, it's not so difficult. Like the formalities uh, is handled by a lawyer that I've hired. Um, and that's pretty easy, you know, we communicate with email and WhatsApp and the same with Elias who was on the farm. He sends me photos of the farm and then I can look at the photos and say, okay, now it looks like we need to do some weeding or, and then he will do it. So. But uh, I'm not the best at delegating stuff, and I wish I was better at that because I think I'm the one who is the uh, person who is making this project go slower. You know, I, I, if I had better skills at delegating and project management, it would probably progress better. So it's I, I don't think it's necessarily the language and kind of distance that makes it slow. <laughs> It's probably because I'm more of a control freak that I have, I have to let, let go a little bit. It's a really interesting personal reflection. Um, I was wondering as well, <laughs> in a more positive light, what are, the, what are the benefits and what are the joys that you get from doing this transnational project? Well, I've learned a lot about uh, soil biology, for instance. I've taken a class in that. Um, I've learned how uh, nature actually grows plants. It, that has kind of also changed my life a little bit in how, how I look at food and what quality food is. And uh, I, you know, I'm more, much more into how food is grown uh, uh, and all these kind of things. And uh, of course, I've learned more Spanish. Um, and I've uh, <laughs> learned much more about what it actually means to be a coffee farmer because. Uh, you know, there's many different types of coffee farmers. Some people are just owning a piece of land and they hire people to do everything. 
and they can sit in an office in a capital city or whatever and not touch the ground at all. They might go to the farm and you know take some photos and be a coffee tourist on their own farm. While other farmers are living on their farm, working there, doing all the weeding, doing all the harvesting, you know, doing all the digging and composting if they do that, you know. So there's many, and there's somewhere in between there. There's a lot of different types of farmers, but um, at least I've learned a little bit about how to be a practical farmer, what it means to get up with the sun and go to bed when the sun goes down, and being dead tired, and next day you have to just continue doing the hard work and. So it really puts things in a little different perspective when you when you start negotiating price for a coffee with a farmer, and uh, you kind of appreciate more what's all the work that is actually behind a cup of coffee. And uh, yeah, so I think that's probably the best knowledge that I've gotten from this project. Is um, it it has opened my mind to understand what what it actually means to be a coffee farmer. That's great. I'm going to move to a theme of inequality, which you've spoken about a few times throughout the, the conversation. Yeah. So Augustine Sedgwick, in his book Coffee Land, asserts that coffee is one of the most important commodities in the history of global inequality. So by studying this product, we can understand how global trade functions and learn about its consequences for global society. So the specific questions here is the history of inequality is closely linked to, the, to that coffee producing nation. Uh, so how do you consider this concept of inequality in your work? How do you approach it? Well, there's no doubt that there's inequality in, in the coffee world. And, uh, that, and that's just, you know, it's for sure. And uh, it's something that uh, I have kind of been taught through where my first employer to kind of try to break out of. And uh, when I started working in coffee, they one of the first days uh, at that coffee shop we went to the coffee roaster who actually owned the coffee shop that i worked for and we learned about coffee and the first thing they were talking about was you know coffee quality is you know there's different qualities but also it's important to pay a good price for the coffee because uh, most people are not <laughs> you know and um, they kind of explain why it's important, you know, because the farmer needs to make money as well. And um, it's really hard work to pick coffee and all these kind of things. And I have to be honest and say that I'm not sure if they actually did pay a very good price back then. Uh, and they certainly weren't transparent uh, back then, but it was kind of pre-internet almost. It was, this was in 1998. So, you know, there was no way to research it, but, um, uh, that was kind of the mantra and then a couple of excellence came along and all these kind of prices uh, were pushed from you know it was i think it was around 50 cents per pound back then in the 1999 or something there was some kind of crisis back then and then a couple of excellence came along and they were able to fetch like prices above a dollar and people were like wow um and then of course now we see that they're getting prices up to two three four or five hundred dollars per pound so uh and that's, you know, that's been a very positive thing. And transparency is easier because of internet and all these things. And it's made it, it has made people more aware of what's actually going on in coffee countries. Uh, and has also made companies uh, or enabled us to actually break out of that mold of being part of a commodity that doesn't work for the suppliers, you know. It only works for the, the buyers and not the suppliers. Um, 
So I think, you know, at least in my career, I've seen that it's easier now than ever to break out of that mold, but not for everyone. And that's very important point to make is that probably 99% of the coffee farmers around the world are still not able to break out of that mold because they're not necessarily growing the best quality coffees. Even if they are, they might not have a customer who's willing to pay for the coffees. They might not have an exporter who is able to find a buyer for their coffees. Um, so there's still a lot of work to be done to change the coffee industry forever. And, you know, I, I would like to be a part of it, but uh, I'm, I'm a tiny, tiny little coffee roaster. We, we buy around 50 metric tons of coffee per year. And, you know, that's the same amount that the biggest roaster in Norway is roasting in a day, you know. So um, it puts things in a little perspective. But uh, I hope that we can kind of inspire uh, bigger companies to, to take action. And, you know, fair trade is probably what started uh, addressing these issues. In the kind of specialty coffee industry, we tend to be skeptical of fair trade and saying oh this is not good we're doing much better we're paying much more uh, but you know I, I don't think it's uh, necessarily bad or anything they're trying to do the same as us it's just on a different level in a much bigger market you know it's that's more for the bigger players and maybe it's part of greenwashing or whatever sometimes it is sometimes it isn't sometimes it has positive impact could they do more yes of course they could but at least it's a start and uh, we tend to want results fast, you know, but it, it takes time to change an industry that has been going on for, you know, hundreds of years. <laughs> and uh, it takes time to change systems uh, that are so big and complex as this, because it is really a huge industry. Like it's one of the biggest trades in the world. And uh, we can expect to, you know, change that by publishing a transparency report once a year, you know, that's that's not the way to do it. It's, it's part of uh, something that can inspire it to change, but um, it's kind of like uh, if you want to change the clothing industry as well, you know, it has to come from the consumers as well and the industry leaders, uh, not just a few of the kind of small uh, uh, hipster companies. It has to come from the huge companies and the consumers. It's not like everyone has to, to contribute. Yeah, so the, in my work in Mexico, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, a theme that's coming out common is conscious consumers. I was wondering how you felt that demand for higher quality products is influencing that. So the the conscious consumer, both in the the consciousness of the quality of the product, but that also connects to a wider consciousness of the way people are treated and that that connection to inequality. Do you feel that there's a a connection there between uh, yeah, I think, you know, especially when it comes to food, uh, you know, a person that is interested in where the food comes from, what quality it is, how it was produced, is very likely to be interested in the same aspects when it comes to wine, when it comes to coffee, maybe when it comes to clothing. Maybe when they're buying, uh, you know, an iPhone, maybe they're not buying a new iPhone. Every time there's a new iPhone, maybe they will wait a few more years until their own iPhone breaks and then they'll buy a new one. I feel like that kind of awareness is on the rise 
among at least my generation and generations uh, below us. But I also see, you know, uh, kids these days, they don't care about that yet. And, and I don't think we can expect them to because, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when you're a kid, all you want is candy, you know, you want to have candy. And then you don't realize that it's, it might not be the best thing for you to eat. <laughs> but once you get older, you get a little bit more aware and like, hmm, yeah, I like candy too, but maybe I should go jogging instead of having that candy, you know? So I, I do think the awareness is there and it's growing, uh, but uh, it, it's not gonna change the world uh, in one generation. I think it will take many generations to kind of change the way we trade and think about products and byproducts. And hopefully uh, the awareness of climate change and the fact that we actually have to do something very soon uh, will have a positive impact on, you know, what, how, how we buy products and what products we actually buy. Because uh, uh, one thing is the economical aspect, but the other thing is also how was the product produced? You know, is it destroying the soil or is it actually putting life back to the soil? Um, that's a... Uh, discussion that you know we could sit here for another hour and, and talk about but um i think those things will be more and more important in the future as well and uh, there is a way to do it and that's partly also why i'm very careful of using the word sustainability because the way we're trading coffee today the way we're growing coffee today in most places it's not sustainable like if, if we take the true meaning of the word we can't continue doing that forever if let's say the world had twice the amount of people, which can be a, real, a reality one day, we wouldn't be able to, to do it this way, you know? So, um, and that means it's not sustainable. So I think we will be forced into a more sustainable consumption uh, sooner than later uh, and sooner than we know it actually. And so keeping with that question or that theme of environment, um, and through the specialty coffee trade, but connecting those consumers to the places of origin and thinking about how the coffee is grown. Unlike if you're eating a strawberry, you're not so concerned about the conditions. Then the specialty coffee industry helps connect urban city dwellers to the rural world and therefore gives a, an, an excellent connection for that abstract concept of environmental care. And it gives you like a really specific focus of a product and understanding the consequences of not looking after the environment. So I was wondering yeah, if you've yeah. noticed any changes uh, in the coffee trade in relation to this this environmental care. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, where to begin? I mean, I, there's so many, there's so much talk about it, but I, I don't see that much action about it, to be honest. Uh, I, on a daily basis, I will see Instagram posts about sustainability and blah, blah, blah. But uh, I know for a fact that most people don't really care about it. They just use it as a word to market their products, you know. And uh, this is why I'm very careful of using this word because I, I, it loses its meaning if you're just throwing it out there and saying this is more sustainable. Well, more sustainable than what? You know, it, it shouldn't be whether it's more sustainable. It should be, is it sustainable or is it not? That's, that's what it is, you know. <laughs> um, and... Um, but I, I do see, you know, on, on a farm level, most of the farmers are actually concerned about the environment because they're depending on it. 
they're depending on the soil to be healthy. They're depending on their trees to be healthy. It's not like they want to spray their trees. Like nobody wants to spend money on spraying their trees. But in many cases, they don't have the knowledge on how to break out of that mold, you know. But um, I do see that there's more awareness around it with farmers, especially farmers who have the, uh, you know, have economy enough to, to kind of even consider that they need to take some action. And there are a lot of these organizations helping farmers, you know, preserve water. They're not kind of polluting by just putting uh, the processing water into rivers, for instance, all these kind of things that doesn't necessarily have a, a huge environmental impact, but it has an impact on other, other people's lives, you know, because if you pollute a river, that's people's drinking water sometimes. Um, and you're not necessarily polluting it with chemicals. It's, it's natural product byproducts from the processing, but it makes the water sour and, you know, it can kill fish in the water and all these kind of things. So uh, I think there is awareness. And I, I do think also more roasters are, and also coffee shops are thinking about this, but they don't necessarily have the tools and know-how on how to, to do it in a more impactful way. You know, For instance, here in Oslo, we've been trying to recycle our plastic and coffee grounds for a long, long time, but nobody wants the products, you know? Nobody wants to get the plastic, nobody wants to get the coffee grounds. And there is a small company now, but she, she can only handle that much coffee grounds. And then finally, the, the city hall has decided to have finally a test project where they're collecting organic material from restaurants and coffee shops and then also doing the plastic recycling, which we are doing as a consumer. Like if you, as a citizen, you have to do this, but as a company, you don't. And we generate much more waste than a citizen, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, it, sometimes you, you have to have political... Uh, changes also to to be able to to do the right thing you know you can't just do everything on their own always it's a great response to the complexity of environmentalism yeah. <laughs> um, and so just to conclude with a kind of positive final question uh, what are your hopes for the future of the coffee industry well i hope we can uh, you know survive as an industry i think coffee is a uh, one of these luxuries that can be part of a economic solution for many people, can be part of environmental solutions for many farms. Um, it's a nice, you know, it's a nice drink to drink. I enjoy drinking it. So I hope uh, the business will be continuing, but probably not as uh, we, we are, are used to it continuing. I, I think probably it will become a, more kind of luxurious product. Um, not something that you give away for free in a gas station, you know. Um, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen in my lifetime. But uh, I really hope that, um, yeah, I hope that the coffee industry can actually be an inspiration to other, other industries as well, because we do have that connection between people, you know. A baker and a wheat grower, it, it's very rare that they meet, but it is possible. And uh, it is possible that the baker actually starts to be concerned about how was the wheat produced, you know, who produced it, how much was it paid for. And uh, the system is already there in the coffee industry somewhat. You know, we, we are working on this and I think it can actually inspire other industries as well. And I hope we can. 
That's great. Um, so that rounds off our questions. So I'll just conclude, Tim. Thank you very much for joining us again. You're welcome. I just want to emphasise that and also helping us work towards our goal of increasing public discussion of the role of coffee in world history. We're grateful for your support for this goal uh, that is helping us to improve the understanding of global history and how it influences our lives. And as well, thanks to our supporters and audience of the Scottish Centre for Global History. Your curiosity and passion for global discussion motivates us to keep working on improving its presence in public history. Thank you.